Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Nick Tajas, who died on October 20th, 2019, three days shy of his 70th birthday, was a professional writer. He wrote everything from record reviews to biographies to essays to novels. His career, which began as a rock journalist for Cream and Rolling Stone magazines, eventually took him into biographies of Jerry Lee Lewis and Dean Martin, various works of nonfiction, novels, poetry, and journalistic essays. On October 19, 1994, my then-co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to sit down with Nick Tashas while he was on tour for his novel, Trinities, which is about an underground war for worldwide control of the heroin trade and is based, in part, on research for another book, Power on Earth, published in 1986, which is the biography of Italian banker Michel Sindona, who was linked both with some of the world's largest financial institutions, the Vatican, and the Italian underworld. We start the interview with questions about Sindona before moving on to Trinity's and other parts of Nick Tasha's career as a writer. Mikel Sindona is a uh, Sicilian financier and heavy in the mob, is that correct? That's a moot point. His contention was that the mafia never had enough money to play with him. He was heavy in, let's say, the Vatican and international banking, and as such had many run-ins with members of, as you put it, the mob. Uh, before we talk about Trinities, and it's a way to start, I'd like to talk a little about Sindona, because if I'm not mistaken, Sindona's name cropped up with rumors regarding the death of Pope John Paul I. Is this correct? Yes. Again, his name popped up with rumors concerning the death of just about everyone. And uh, his own death to this day is a mystery. Uh, he died in, in prison, a prison in uh, Volgare, Italy, which is the, the highest security prison in all of Italy. And uh, interestingly enough, it's a women's prison. He was the only male ever put there. And he died of uh, potassium cyanide poisoning, and uh, no one knows if it was suicide or murder. He was, to put it mildly, an interesting character. I became involved with him. I needed a nonfiction subject to write about, and... Uh, Literally nothing in the world interested me, and I caught a glimpse of him on a TV news show where he was being carted from one prison to another, and they were mentioning the Vatican and Roberto Calvi hanging from a Blackfriars Bridge in London. And I decided to make contact with him, and he responded. And uh, we ended up doing a book. I interviewed him in prison extensively here and in Italy. A lot of what he told me could not be used in the book Power on Earth, which I did about him since this is a world of lawyers. And I ended up uh, using a great deal of what he told me 
in the veil of fiction, this book Trinity. Is the character of the the Don in Sicily, the old man in Sicily, is that based on uh, Sindona? Not at all. Not I, at all? Not at all. No, not one iota. Sindona was nothing like that? Nothing like that, no. After your meeting with Sindona in prison, you and he continued to correspond, and I just wondered, including, I, b I believe, the last letter he wrote was addressed to you. That's true. Was there any hint in uh, in any of these letters, especially that final one, that uh, that anything strange was going on? Which obviously, the next thing that happened, he's dead. Something strange must have happened. There were intimations of of, of death in that letter. He made a statement to the effect that he believed in, in a higher justice in God and that if anything should happen, this was the case. He had no fear. But nothing in the letter gave evidence that he planned suicide or saw his own death coming. And uh, I remember talking to his sons afterward, and uh, no one has a definite idea. To this day, there's really no judgment. Well, Sindona and the kind of life he led brings us to your new book, Trinities, which is a novel with a great deal of factual information mixed up amid the fiction. And uh, I'd like to get into that in, in a little bit. But some curious events happened after the book was written. And uh, it said in your promotional material, in July of this year, I guess, uh, the government of Myanmar, which is Burma, approached the government of the United States with uh, the same offer the head of the world's foremost opium warlord in exchange for arms that the mafia offers that same government in Trinities. And in Chinatown, uh, the revelations came out about a group called the Tung An, one of the triads who play a role in your book. And there was also a poison heroin scare that parallels material in your book. Your book is fiction then. I mean, how much were you drawing on, on events that you saw happening? It is fiction. Of course, I was drunk to a great extent on events I saw happening. None of these things, I mean, I, no one can foresee the future, I think. One of the uh, the plot machinations in the book did involve the mafia coming to the heads of state of Myanmar. And Myanmar, because of its, its standing as, a, you know, the greatest source of, of heroin in the world, has difficulty in procuring arms from other nations. And so the deal was, we will get you arms if you murder or get rid of the opium warlord who is the greatest figure in the heroin trade in the world. And, you know, a lot of people thought this was a far-fetched proposal. People had read the book before it was published. And then uh, the government of Myanmar itself it turned out, actually approached the government of America with the same exact deal. If you get us arms, we'll give you this person, who in real life is a, a, a man known as Kun Sa. And you call him Asim Sao. Asim or his, his equivalent. Yeah, yeah his equivalent yeah. in the book. It's intriguing that you have the government of Burma or Myanmar involved in this fashion, but in fact... Uh, over the past uh, 10 to 15 years, there have been suggestions of government involvement in international drug trade involving many countries. I, j I jotted down a little list before we went on the air, and I, I thought of Nicaragua, Cuba, where Fidel Castro executed a couple of his uh, closest associates for being drug dealers, 
Recent accusations of uh, drug involvement on the part of the military junta in Haiti, which very recently left the country. Uh, other stories of uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Colombia, and a little country called the United States of America. You know, I'd like you to comment on this in general and in, and in particular. What does this mean? I mean, at, at one level, are, are we going to look at the president of the United States as people like um, who is it, Jerry Falwell does and accuse him of being an unindicted drug lord and, and even murderer? Or, or does this happen only at, at lower levels? Like, uh, let's say, pardon me for mentioning those nasty words, like the Ollie North level. I think it, it occurs on many levels a person like our president i don't know how much he could be accused of at this point except maybe having a, a bad hairstylist i wouldn't be surprised if he knew very little of what was going on i mean i would be, wouldn't be surprised if he knew little about what his wife was doing let alone what his government was doing but all the things you mentioned the country's involvement i think that's largely true and it was knowledge of this that that brought me to the, the premise of writing Trinities, which is just basically a book about about the evil of the world. It wasn't, I didn't want to write a book that was good versus evil. I wanted to write a book that was evil versus evil for evil, just a dark black world. And it was a way, I think, evoking the reality you're talking about in details, but doing it in fiction without going into all those details and just using a certain sort of... Uh, construct of facts and reality mm -hmm. that just dealt with aspects of that. I wonder then, uh, this, what you refer to as the, the dark world, uh, has fascinated us and, and has fascinated novelists for many, many years. Uh, Richard Walensky and I just recently taped a show with Larry McMurtry and his collaborator, Pretty Boy Floyd, and we go back um, uh, two or three generations to W.R. Burnett and Little Caesar. Uh, we go back into the 19th century and we find the glorification of uh, the Western outlaws and, and either even farther back, uh, Francois Villon and, and uh, Dick Turpin. There, it seems that there's just this ongoing fascination on the part of uh, the ordinary working stiff with uh, outlaws and gangsters. Do you have any notion why that is the case? On the deepest level, I think the fascination is a way of confronting our own darkest sides and darkest urges without consciously doing so. Sort of like we look within while looking without. We focus on a little Caesar or a, or a, or a murderer, and it's our way of coming closer to the, the seed of that capacity within our, ourselves. Now, in many of the instances you just mentioned, it's always been, but in the end, uh, you know, good triumphs and I think the, the world is such today where that's no longer a, a palatable uh, coding for the pill and I think that we have to uh, realize that we might be in in a world where uh, that's no longer a, a consolation or a coding what comes up for me is is that you know in the battle between good and evil has evil won? I mean, it, it would seem in Trinities, um, and I, I guess perhaps that the perspective of the book, you know, the, the overriding perspective is, of course, yours, that you, you think it, it has, and what we're left with is perhaps the lesser evil of a Johnny DiPietro uh, rather than the greater evil of his Uncle Joe 
or of the Asian heroin merchants. Okay, that's one way of saying it. It's all subjective. I mean, first of all, is he a lesser evil? Because another fact that, another fact, that's not a fact. Another sentiment brought out in the book is that, you know, wisdom is the most dangerous thing. And uh, if he does have a trace of wisdom, maybe he is not going to end up the lesser of evils. Is it evil triumphs? Because there's really no alternative to evil brought up in in the book. Well, there is to a small degree. Uh, One poor uh, schlep working for the DEA, who appears at the beginning at least to be a, a counterweight to Johnny, or perhaps even the hero of the book. A but counterweight, but he's, but he's also shown as a person who is playing the game of good versus evil. Cowboys and Indians, right and wrong. Good guys, bad guys. Is playing a game ever a match for you know, the dire reality of, of the real thing? The other aspect is there's a, a comments that we've all heard about the banality of evil. The characters, the evil characters you present, are not banal at all. No. These people are extraordinary. They're not banal. I mean, this is a completely different approach to how we normally view evil men. We like to associate evil with, uh, I think, to a certain extent, with, say, a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, a, a Jack the Ripper, that vampire level, this blind, brute murder. Just as we like to associate good with uh, the guy who helps the old lady across the street, and rather rather than get into uh, the complexities and the subtleties of, of good and evil in them in their philosophical extremes, Julius Caesar was no slouch, and neither were his, his opponents. Really, they do exhibit certain banal attributes at times, but don't we all? I'm intrigued that you mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer, who's somehow been a, a leitmotif on this radio show for the past two years. People keep talking about him. Uh, Peter Straub uh, has a character based closely on him in, in a recent novel. When you use this term of, of banality, if you recall watching Dahmer in the courtroom tapes that were released, he does not have claws and fangs the and bushy American eyes. Boy. Yeah, I mean, he's... He's polite and articulate and, and the guy that you wouldn't mind your daughter dating. And, and then it turns out that, that there's this other side to his personality. I mean, it's like the face of Satan could be very pleasant. There's a, a phrase that's almost the opening, opening sound of your new novel, Trinity's, first in Spanish, then in English, The Jockey's Back. And to me, that just rings through the book. Talk about the origin of that expression. Let's not only the uh, the opening of the book. It was basically the opening of the origin of the book. I was up in East Harlem going to uh, a restaurant, and this really dismal, practically dead young junkie came up to me in the street and asked me for it's either a match or a cigarette. I think it was a match, and I lit his cigarette, and he whispered, "The jockey's back." And it took a moment for it to sink in. I realized that Jockey was a brand name of heroin. They, they sell it all by brand names in the street. Does, excuse me, does this re- revert back to the old term of horse as a slang term? For no, I think it was just like their other names, uh, body bag, and it just happened to be mm-hmm. this was, was a Jockey. You know, that was their brand name. 
This guy's eyes were, were as dirty as Jeffrey Dahmer's were clean, whatever that means. Uh, and it sort of reminded me of, you know, the horseman in the book of the apocalypse, you know, death, the rider. And that was it. It was just like just this notion of, of evil and just this insignificant fleeting wisp in the street. And that's where I got the idea to use heroin as a metaphor and to tie the whole plot to heroin to tell this tale, which is basically a tale of, of evil. To me, the basic question, I think we've been circling around it here a little, at the heart of the book is, was there good and evil before man invented the gods? Did man invent good and evil? Did these things always exist? Would they exist in a person preternaturally devoid of any influences or any civilization? And to tell that story, I use the whole construct of heroin, the international heroin trade, and uh, trying to get into the minds of individuals and souls who would uh, become involved in that battle. I have a friend, I, I will not mention his name on the air, uh, he's a lawyer, uh, a very libertarian in his political position, and uh, he and I have, have talked about the whole issue of drugs in our society many times, uh, and he, being true to his philosophy, would like to see the repeal of all drug laws, and his attitude is, if anybody wants to stick, not that he's in favor of people using drugs, but his attitude is, if if any anyone is inclined to stick poison in his veins and thereby destroy himself, that's his own lookout. To be perfectly honest, I would... Uh tend to agree with your nameless friend. Uh, I don't think you can legislate uh, morality, though they're trying to do so now with cigarettes. Uh, cigarettes are easy. Liquor wasn't easy. Prohibition just gives just gives birth to, uh, to crime on a lot of levels. I mean, it happened with liquor. It's happened with heroin. I mean, God knows how much low-level crime in the street, how much robbery and whatever is associated to drugs. But uh, I don't think heroin will become legal. I mean, they legalized it to a certain extent in England, and it didn't really it didn't really help. There's too much money to be made in having it illegal. And what about the relationship of heroin and cocaine? Is there any? Is Her it the same story? It's not the same story. Heroin is it's like diamonds are forever. Heroin is forever. That's why right now in South America, the people that are really big, the most important people in cocaine are trying to get into heroin. Heroin is forever. Uh, most people that, that, that do large quantities of heroin put some cocaine in it. But heroin is the big daddy of them all, I think. And it's coming back, too. I mean, it was at a low tide for a while. It's coming back. The great irony is that... Is that this is, uh, say, this is a government that's going to do absolutely nothing about drugs, about heroin, about cocaine, except make huge bonfires of money and burn it, take it out of the people's pockets, people who live in this country, um, support the drug trade in, in different ways, and then get very indignant about secondary smoke, you know. It's okay to shoot you, but not blow smoke in your face, because they'll always go for the easiest way out. It's like they don't want to fight crime. They want to fight bad manners. In what way does the government uh, support the drug trade? Well, in many of the instances you mentioned before, I mean, certain ties with, with, uh, with, with Nicaragua, 
God knows how much money in this country, just as in South America, indirectly finds its its way towards supporting uh, certain political candidates. We have dealings in Asia where the government does know what's going on. I mean, you can go back to this whole thing. You know, Ollie North, you mentioned before, the Nugent Hand Bank, that bank in Australia. It's it's just there. I mean, um, it's it's just there. The informational background of your novel, Trinities, which is which is a lot more than just a story, although obviously the book can be read on, on the level of just a story, and, and let me say it's a, it's a good one at, at that point, but the factual background is obviously very detailed and very deep. You mentioned meeting this fellow with the, with the dead, dirty eyes who told you about mm-hmm. the jockey and started you on a trail. Mm-hmm. But where did that trail go? Once I realized what I was setting out to do here, that I needed to latch on to concrete details to make the metaphor work, that I wanted to sort of build a cathedral of factual details and then haunt it. I ended up dealing with uh, undercover, um, Chinese undercover cops in Chinatown, people you might call gangsters, and just trying to take information wherever I could and also immersing myself to a great great extent in... uh, Chinese culture and the culture of the, of the triads and, and realizing what an ornate culture that the triads were uh, had, you know, with strategies of evil that if they were read out really uh, project a, a perfect scheme of evil. And I went, I took me to libraries too on that level. To me, that's why it was very gratifying that after I wrote the book to find that they were going to publish it in China, in, in Chinese, which made me feel like, well, I pulled it off. I pulled that part of it off. Most of the details in the in the book are, are, are true and accurate. It's just that what I do with them, the vision and the colors is just invention. Somewhere. The triads themselves, the Tung An, the uh, Ghost Shadows, 14K, On Liang, are all real. Well, 14K is a big triad. Tung An, for instance, is a... Uh, Americanized version, which is a, a, a tong, as we say, a dong, as they say, and the ghost shadows would be the, the street gang of the uh, the dong. These are all real. In terms of the Italians, uh, we used to think of the Italians as the various families. It it seems, at least in Trinities, that those families as we knew them or as we remember them from fiction in the Godfather or the reality, Gambino, and so on, are gone now. Is this correct? I, I would say that that's, that's pretty true, but also I'd like to make clear, I think, to a certain level, the whole hierarchy of, of the so-called mafia in this country as conceived was basically invented by the government in terms of charts and diagrams and ordered bureaucracies, which were easy for them to to comprehend and deal with. They would put somebody at the head of an imaginary hierarchy, and therefore they had somebody to go for and somebody to catch. And they always went for the easiest targets, the guys who dressed and acted the role. I mean, guys from central casting who weren't necessarily the biggest and most important uh, people in any given operation. I'd like to ask a little about the rest of your career. You grew up in Newark, and your father was a bar bouncer? No, not a bar bouncer. He, he had to throw people out of bars. He was a bartender and a bar owner. 
That's the business I was in originally, too. And you wound up writing for uh, Cream and Rolling Stone magazine. It said in some of the biographical material that you reviewed records that didn't exist, and you sometimes reviewed records without opening the shrink wrap. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that. I've reviewed books just by looking at the author's photo. I mean, he looks like a good guy. Okay, it's a good book. Yeah. This is not surprising. It's just surprising to hear anyone admit it. Well, it was it was it it was fun then. I mean, it it was fun. I mean, you understand? I was I was writing at a time when I was younger. I had a lot of opportunities to write, which I don't think young writers have these days, because now it's either. No magazine or big time magazine. There's nothing in between, and I I really had the opportunity and pleasure and great grace of of starting out at a time when I think freedom of speech was was a lot stronger. When magazines, the content of magazines and the tone of magazines were not always dictated by advertisers or by any ideas of political correctness, and I had a lot of fun. And eventually, I even made a living at it. You also uh, worked for something called the Lovable Underwear Company, right? Two hundred Madison Avenue. It sounds like a <laughs> what? 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 What's that about? <laughs> it's an underwear company. I mean, they're big on training bras. Uh, every every Christmas, we 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 you know we'd rob the stock room and take them down to the Blarney Stone Bar, and these guys would buy them for gifts for their doors. It was an underwear company. I was the I was a. They don't even have this this job anymore. Paste ups and mechanicals. Now it's all done on computers. Just make the newspaper. No bag, no sag. That was my big artistic uh, creation. No bag, no sag. Then then you went on to work at uh, you went on to work at Rolling Stone magazine as well. What did you do there? I didn't I didn't work at Rolling Stone. You just wrote for them. Uh, yeah, I just uh, very few people would have me as a as a worker. Uh, you once said, and I'd like you to talk about mm -hmm. this. This is a quote. You were talking about uh, Dean Martin at the time. Life is a racket. Writing is a racket. Sincerity is a racket. Everything's a racket. Well, I, I believe that that's true. I believe that that's true. I mean, you know, the honesty is the best policy. I mean, that that phrase in itself, it, it should be honesty is the best racket. I mean, you're being honest to get something in return. Otherwise, you wouldn't be worried about what the policy was. People say that they write to express themselves. I mean, well, you can express yourself and be a plumber. You write to make money. I just think once you start seeing things in terms of dysphemism rather than euphemism, you come a little closer to the truth. That's all I, I meant by that. And Dean Martin, I think, was a great man. He's a great man. You talk about political correctness, and immediately I'm struck by our ethnic consciousness of the present uh, present era. Um, I, I think a lot of it is good. I mean, if you remember uh, your childhood as well as mine, uh, when there were uh, vicious race jokes po poking uh, really nasty, hurtful fun at anybody with a particular uh, skin color or eye shape or simple ancestral background. On the other hand, are we just turning away from the fact, simple objective fact, that most of the criminal gangs that exist have some sort of distinctive uh, ethnic uh, homogeneity? And just all these different ethnicities, what's the connection between ethnicity and crime? Well, I think on a real level, it was uh, people coming from the same environment that are uh, binding together in their attack 
on the world, by attack on the world, I mean their drive to claim one piece of it. And uh, basically any criminal enterprise is built on not trusting anyone. No one man makes an army, so you got to trust anybody. They would trust their own kind. As usual, the worst enemy would be their own their own kind. I think now, though, lately, I, I get a kick out of every once in a while on television. They always have all gangs are integrated, which to me is like the... And they all have capped teeth, of course, too. But the fact is, if, if you watch the news shows instead of the fiction shows, yeah. if you're able to distinguish, here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, for instance, there have been... A very severe problems, particularly down around the South Bay, San Jose area, with Vietnamese and other Asian gangs. Well, the Vietnamese are also a, a big problem in New York, and then also among among the the Asians, the Chinese. It's segmented between uh, Fujinese and Cantonese. One thing I, I bring out in the book: and the, the Fujinese are sworn enemies of the Cantonese, and the Cantonese are sworn enemies of the Twaisanese, which is even a subdivision of the Cantonese and within Fu the Fujinese, there, there are groups in different areas. The mafia, as it's known in this country, which is never really the true mafia, the Sicilian mafia, was very democratic. I think, I mean, contrary to public belief, it was half Jewish, the whole thing. I mean, who were people like uh, Meyer Lansky you know, and all his friends? To me, the, both sides of America, the, the two great Sicilians, complete contemporaries, uh, Lucky Luciano and Frank Capra. It's like there's two mm -hmm. sides of the American dream. You know, I mean, um, the year Frank Capra makes it's a wonderful life, they send Lucky Luciano back to Sicily. They're both from Sicily, you know what I mean? But just two sides of the American dream. And two ways, two rackets. I mean, Frank Capra just creates this complete lie and makes legal money. Lucky Luciano sells this other complete lie called heroin and liquor, makes the same amount of money, and they send Lucky back and they give uh, Frank the Academy Award. And to me, that's America. It's the beauty of it. One could also say that the two are not quite equivalent, or are they? I don't know. I mean, can not, you know, believing in It's a Wonderful Life rather than just enjoying it as a Christmas experience uh, be as, uh, you know, mentally or psychically crippling as heroin can be ruinous i mean tough question to answer you're, you're a philosopher nick you came here because you wrote a gangster book and it turns out you're secretly a great philosopher i understand you're also a great antiquarian bookman yeah i am I what's love, your specialty I collect old books always cross the board uh early english language editions of hesiod 20th century poetry charles olson some uh, friends of mine right down the road here, serendipity books. Mm -hmm. uh, I might drop in on them. There's a, a short aside in the book, and it's something that people have talked about on KPFA at great length because it's a kind of part of the conspiracy theorists. The story of Danny Casalero Inslar and Michael Riconosciuto, who's I guess is still languishing up in a jail in uh, in the North Country, or is he? As far as I know, he's in jail. I mean, I've yet to find out otherwise. Uh, now, he'd be uh, a great guest on any show, and I'd love to meet up with him. That's an intriguing thing. That This is a guy, Danny, I guess everybody knows this story, so should I even mention well, it? Well, everybody does not know. Okay, Danny Castellaro briefly was a man who had, uh, were led to believe 
found his way to the heart of many of these matters we've been talking about, factual matters, not fictional or philosophical, about the, the ties between uh, immense inter international global corruption and American politics. And he was writing a book called The Octopus. The book was almost done. He was supposed to be meeting at a, in West Virginia with a final source. He was very optimistic. And he, he was found uh, dead with both wrists slashed in a motel room in West Virginia. And his only manuscript of the book was gone. Other aspects of the story are far more complicated. They deal with computer software that the government sold to other countries. And uh, one man named Michael Riconosciuto, who was going to testify at a hearing in behalf of Casolaro's side of the story, who was supposedly set up by the DEA as a drug dealer and ended up in prison. And uh, to say the least, it's intriguing. And uh, that's a little fleeting thing in the, in the book, actually. One other thing you mentioned, uh, and the only reason I mentioned it here is because uh, we recently interviewed Joseph Heller, and a large portion of his book deals with the metaphor of George Tillyou and the steeplechase in Coney Island. And it makes a fleeting appearance here. Heller was also convinced that the face was an evil face. I am, well, we, of course. I mean, you know, so. We both share that belief, I think. Do you know the face? Uh, I don't know the face. <laughs> I, I refer to the face as the grin of metastatic delights. Uh, a, happy, a happiness more grotesque than than eternal damnation it's uh it was the face the trademark face on the side of of coney island at the turn of the century and i think it terrified more children than ever well, First scared me yeah yeah you you, you know i have a feeling that that face inspired the joker in batman if you think about that that oh, hideous that leering face. grin on the joker you and i are the same age but i grew up in queens and you i guess yeah. in brooklyn was that face around when we were growing up that face was around, and to me, it was just—it it, was—it was a presence. It was sort of like a, that eye that floats over the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill. I can't tell you when I first saw it, where I first saw it, but it was there. I mean, maybe we're all born with it in the Northeast. I mean, somewhere in the back of the brain. <laughs> but it's, I'd like to talk about Dean Martin because we 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 think of Dean Martin as the sidekick of Frank Sinatra and earlier of of Jerry Lewis. And in his time, and I remember 1964, Everybody Loves Somebody, he was one big star. Today he's alive and forgotten, and occasionally his withered visage can be seen on the National Enquirer. Why is he a metaphor for show business, do you think? Well, first of all, we might have, uh, what was it, withered visages at the age of 78, just like him. So to me, he's a metaphor because it's just him and Sinatra. Sinatra is a guy, I think, who basically has helped to foster his whole mystique as an artist, whereas Dean Martin has done the absolute opposite by not caring, never calling himself an artist, having no pretensions. Sinatra idolized Dean. It wasn't the other way around. To me, Dean is a symbol of uh, show business. First of all, he... He was at the top of every aspect of show business, something that, that uh, Sinatra never did, because Sinatra could never make it on television. 
and deemed it at all number one records, number one uh, box office, stage, radio, television. Uh, but he never took himself seriously, and that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Actors take themselves seriously. It's amazing. I mean, the, the gravity with which they can pronounce these hollow vacuities as if, uh, you know, they've come to some Homeric truths just because they read a column in Time magazine or something. Uh, and Dean never took himself seriously, and I, and I, sort, of, uh, I sort of admire and respect that. He represents some sort of philosophical truth. He's a guy who uh, withdrew from the world according to the two people that are close to him is perfectly content. So I like to think that, you know, if he grew a long white beard and put on a white robe, people would uh, consider him, uh, you know, a holy man. <laughs> Maybe Elvis is living with him. <laughs> he outlived them all, being Elvis. Yeah. Uh, no, but the thing with with, with Dean Martin is is that uh, he made a bundle. He had and, uh, fame and popularity, and, and then didn't want he didn't need it anymore. Which yeah. to me was great that he, that he didn't need that fix, that drug anymore. He just didn't need it. Do you think relating trinities to that that that's the goal of your protagonist Johnny De Pietro? I, I get a sense of that. Where does the greed stop? I don't know if this book answers that or if there's any end in sight at the at the end of this book. I really don't. For instance, like uh, at one point in life, $100 looks like a lot, then it's 1000 Then he has all the money in the world, and, and still, you know, the greed continues. Uh, one of the characters in the book, Louis Bowen, says that, uh, you know, money becomes a Jones just like anything else. But Dean Martin seems to have kept the money and kicked the habit. If only he'd stop dyeing his hair. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, it stands between him and perfection. I mean, it's his final stage of reincarnation is coming. He's got one more left, one more go around. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> just run for president. Yeah, right. One final question about Trinities. It's been optioned for film? Yeah, it's been optioned for film. It'll be an expensive movie to make. Either that or they'll completely ruin it rather than half ruin it. Yeah, we, actually, the book was optioned for film... When I'd only uh, written 100 pages, just when it was uh, bought by the publisher on the basis of 100 pages. And what's next for Nick Toshis? you have another book? Uh, next novel will be called Scratch, and it'll be out in about two years. What's the general well, subject matter? Oh, death and sex. All well, I have to do is write it now, otherwise it'll be out in two years. <laughs> A film of Trinities was never made. After the interview, Nick Toshis published five more books of fiction and poetry, biographies of boxer Sonny Liston, minstrel singer Emmett Miller, and gangster Arnold Rothstein, and three other works of journalism. He also appeared on Anthony Bourdain No Reservations in 2009. Trinities appears to be out of print, but used copies are easily available online. My co-host for the interview was Richard A. Lupoff, the interview was recorded in the KPFA studios on October 19, 1994. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>